Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. This episode is sponsored, edited, and engineered by my friends at Law Pods. Law Pods is a professional podcast production company focused solely on attorney podcasting. I absolutely love working with them, and if you're considering becoming a legal podcaster or just want to learn more, check them out at lawpods.com. And now, let's get started. Hello, and welcome back. In today's episode, I'm excited to speak with Josh Scharf, who's the General Counsel and Director Programs at Brady, the Campaign to End Gun Violence here in Washington, D.C., before joining Brady more than five and a half years ago, Josh served as an associate at Pierre Gannon Gisler LLP, a Washington, D.C.-based law firm with a nationwide litigation practice and a special focus on effective resolution of labor and employment disputes. Josh is a graduate of Rutgers, Go Scarlet Knights, the George Washington University School of Law, Go Colonials, and holds a master's in international studies from the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, Go Blue Jays. So Josh, I was hoping we could start by hearing a little bit about your path to law school and your decision to become a lawyer. Yeah, happy to do so. I think I was one of those people where law school just kind of always made sense. I grew up around the law. My dad was, uh, was a lawyer. I studied things that were law-adjacent, political science. I was interested in what a law degree would do for me um, and, and you know, to empower me to do the things that I wanted in life. And I think also probably for all of those reasons, I didn't want to be a lawyer as well. <laughs> I remember uh, I, I did my undergrad at Rutgers. Um, I was in my last year. I was ready to graduate. I decided that I was going to go with my uh, old college roommate, and we were going to do uh, a backpacking trip through Southeast Asia, but I was very concerned about not having anything lined up for when I got back. So I applied to four law schools, <laughs> and I remember I turned in my applications on the day before I got on the plane to go on my trip, said, let's see what happens. <laughs> you know, schools that all in my mind had good international law programs, which was something that I thought I was really interested in at the time, turned in my applications and then went away and didn't think about it and got all of my acceptances and rejections, right, while I was traveling and decided then that I would be going to GW Law School. Fantastic. And one of the other things I noticed about your resume is that you ended up deciding to not only get a JD, but also a master's. So can you tell me a little bit about the thought process behind that? So when I started at law school, I was not a joint degree student. I'd always been interested in international relations, those, those types of topics. I'd studied it uh, in my undergrad as a poli-sci major and obviously just kind of traveling around Southeast Asia and you know other countries for a while really just kind of drove home for me that I, I loved that work too, that, that study too. So about a year uh, after I finished law school, um, realized what law school really was, I thought to myself, you know, I kind of want to pursue this too. I want to go back to this. And I applied to uh, Johns Hopkins SICE. I was fortunate enough to get in. Um, so I extended my stay for a year at, under, at, well, at law school and, and my master's program in order to get both degrees. And Really, um, there's a lot of juggling, a lot of balancing. It was one of these ad hoc programs. There wasn't really a clear path, but it also really felt empowering that I could take control of my own education at that point again and go and pursue both degrees. Yeah, and what's really interesting to me is that your current role doesn't scream international relations. So I guess I'm curious if you've gained something in that degree that you continue to use today, and would you do the master's again if you were forced to choose whether or not to do it all over again? Yes and yes. <laughs> um, that would be the short answer. 
Look, I loved going to SICE. It was just a different graduate experience um, with a different group of people and one where I really could use the skills at law school in a different context. So, you know, I guess in hindsight, it was really actually helpful, right, to have kind of this broader view of the law. Sometimes law, right, can be narrow, particularly in law school, um, and to kind of broaden that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. My work doesn't scream international relations, but I studied conflict management when I was at SICE. And, you know, the work that I do right now in the gun violence prevention space really does have a lot of overlap. So I'd like to think that the dots have all connected, but I'm also... I have a long career ahead of me still, so we'll see. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I also got a master's degree, albeit before starting law school. And at the time, people kept asking me, like, why are you doing this? But then when I actually started applying for legal jobs, people always asked me about it as a positive, given that it it gave me more experience and I had another opportunity that taught me how to think and how to write and how to communicate with a new audience. And I think it just made me a more complete person and frankly, a more complete lawyer uh, after the fact. Absolutely. And it's funny that, you know, these things come together later, right? That you don't necessarily realize it at the same time. And yeah, there's a little voice in your head saying, I got to pay for another year of grad school. Uh, Is it really going to be worth it for me? But, you know, in hindsight, it, it absolutely was. Although I did have to make a promise to my wife um, that I wouldn't pursue a PhD, that I had done enough school and that uh, I had to go work. So let's talk a little bit about that work. So you graduate from your graduate program and law school, and what do you do next? Sure. Well, I think have to back up a little bit. I was fortunate enough to do a whole variety of law uh, clerk jobs and, and um, you know, and, and internship opportunities while I was in what was a four-year program. So I even had additional opportunities. You know, I interned at uh, nonprofits, you know, focused on refugee issues. I, uh, I, I worked at a couple federal government agencies, the, the Department of Commerce, um, the Department of Justice. I worked at two small to mid-sized firms, um, you know, one doing union side labor and employment law, uh, one doing plaintiff side class action litigation. Really, the one thing I knew I didn't want to do was big law. Um, perfectly fine track, right? Lots of people, it, it's it's a good match for them. I knew it wasn't a good match for me. So I really tried a lot of things out. And, you know, as I was nearing uh, my graduation, that small union side and labor law firm that I had worked for was expanding, was growing. Not something that I expected because it was a really small firm. And they asked me to come on as an associate. And I will say, right, one of the things that really drew me there, right, is I had worked there for a period of time. I knew the lawyers. They were really just fantastic mentors, really great lawyers and really great people. And when you know those things about a place, you know, and you can go into that, uh, you know there's really a great opportunity. So I I accepted that job, Um, not one that I necessarily saw myself accepting when I started my law school path, but one that, you know, I was really excited to start. Yeah, and I guess before we talk about sort of what you did in that position, I'm really glad you backed us up to the internship process and what you did during law school because something that I hear from listeners and my students all the time, if I have advice about how to spend time outside of the classroom, whether that's during the summer or during the semester, and a question I get, and frankly, I don't always know how to answer it, is how do you make the most of those experiences? How do you make sure that you're really picking up, whether it's skills or the networks or opportunities, because it sounds like that was such a huge part of what you ended up doing right out of school. Yeah, I think just, you know, focusing on the opportunities that are there, right? 
it's really tempting, right? And, and I think law school, and for reasons I totally understand, very focused on getting your first job at a law school, right? So sometimes you go into these jobs and you go in with the idea of, you know, is this going to be a full-time position for me? And I guess the advice that I would give is don't get lost in that, right? Make sure you're taking advantage of the, the, the learning and growth opportunities and really the practical skills, right? Because the practice of law, anyone who's been through law school tells you, is so different than law school, right? And just really leaning into the work, finding mentors, finding people that you can learn from and just diving in. And, and who knows where it's going to lead, right? Um, but if you, you know, put yourself and your full effort into it and really commit yourself to that work for the sake of that internship, whether it's three months, whether it's a year, whatever it may be, that's the way to get the most out of it. All right, so let's go back to your first job. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, it was, um, it was wild, right? Um, one of the clients of the firm was um, a large postal service, so large postal workers union. And we as a firm handled all of the arbitration work uh, for them. A lot of contract disputes, but really a lot of employee discipline cases across the country. And they used lawyers to argue these cases. So I think it was three months in, right? I, I maybe less of, of being a full-time associate there where I went out and did my first arbitration by myself. I hadn't even, right, I, I took the New York bar. I hadn't even been sworn in yet, right? You don't have to have a law degree to do arbitration work, right? And you don't have to be barred, right, to do arbitration work. And I did my, yeah, I did my first arbitration within just a few months. It was very much in the fire, which, which is how it was, you know, designed by my mentors there. And I was, you know, I was assigned to, I'd say I ended up probably doing about two to four arbitrations a month all over the country for the seven or eight years that I was there. Some of them would settle, some of them, you know, ahead of time, some of them would settle when we got there. Often we would be arguing the cases to arbitrators. And that was just, that was a way to learn, right? It was scary, right? And I, you know, I, I'm, I'm arguing cases and someone's livelihood is, is on the line. I'm a young attorney, but you know, you, you prepare, you do your best, um, you learn, as you go. Um, and it was a really great experience. So another aspect of the work there was we, we had a, um, an employment law practice as well, kind of a, a very specialized, unique practice uh, where we represented clergy, particularly rabbis and cantors in contract negotiations with, um, with synagogues um, and really specialized area. I don't think there's lots of people that do it, but I'll tell you, you know, often rabbis would, would come to us and say, hey, I was going to you know, handle my own negotiation. It, it turns out there's six lawyers on the board. And you know, I thought I'd get a free pass because I bar mitzvahed all of their children, but it's ruthless in there, right? So it was really interesting work to be involved in, in negotiations. Most of them were really amicable, right? Trying to find a deal that worked for everyone. You know, some of them could, would get messy as, as they do, and um, it was just really interesting work to be in that space of um, negotiations and contracts and, and also kind of dealing with a really weird area of the law, right, where you're dealing with religious institutions and the law just applies differently, like discrimination law and things like that. And it was, honestly, it was a shifting landscape, you know, when I was there uh, based on circuit and, and eventually even Supreme Court precedent. Um, but really just interesting work to do that all over the country as well. And how did your experience negotiating contracts connect to your work arbitrating contracts after the fact? Rarely do people get the opportunity to both be there on the ground level when a contract gets signed, but also 
deal with arbitrating a different contract uh, or the same one or litigating it later on. Did you learn anything about being a litigator from your work negotiating contracts? And I guess, did you learn anything about negotiating contracts from your work as a litigator? Oh yeah, absolutely, right? Um, and even in my current role, which we'll, we'll get to in a little bit, right? Like, I think I was trained in a sense to learn, you know, to think about what are all of the things that could possibly go wrong, right? And seeing things, right, where, where there is ambiguity or, you know, issues and really thinking critically about how to resolve them on the front end and talk through things. It's a great point you make, Jonah, like, right, to kind of see the life cycle of, of contracts from the beginning to the end, but, you know, in different contexts. Okay, so let's talk about your transition to Brady, which is a pretty different type of practice and practice area entirely. What was the thought process like? How did that come about? Yeah, well, it was 2017, right? And I think for many people that uh, have similar worldviews as, as I do, right? Similar outlook on the importance of social justice work. It was a tough time in, in the country, and I felt like I wanted to be part of something a little bit bigger, right? Some, something that was really plaguing our country and that I could lend my experience, my voice, my passion to really trying to make a change on a societal level, right, to something that was clearly plaguing America. I had a friend who uh, worked at Brady, not a lawyer, right, who uh, told me that Brady was hiring a litigator, right, um, someone in their legal department, and suggested that I could apply. And that's what I did, right? And, you know, thinking about it, right, I've always had a focus on conflict and um, armed conflict uh, from my days at SAIS and even before, and thinking about really policy approaches and other approaches to reduce violence. So I threw my hat in the ring to go over to Brady, and they were, I guess they saw something in my resume, probably a lot of that arbitration and litigation work, and being able to really just argue cases, and apparently they wanted me to join too. <laughs> so I went over as a litigator, and it was really exciting, right? Uh, ultimately, I started off representing victims of gun violence against gun industry businesses that had illegally or negligently sold firearms that were used to kill or maim our clients or their family members. It's heavy work, right? But really important work. And the gun industry really enjoys these unique legal protections. There's a piece of legislation called the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, and it provides limited immunity to gun industry businesses from civil lawsuits, right? So going back to kind of your torts class, right? Like they teach you, or at least they taught me, right? Like doctors and hospitals have developed systems to account for every instrument that they're using in surgery, right? For fear out of medical malpractice lawsuits, right? We know that torts, right? Causes industries to reform and adopt safe business practices. But that's not really the case for the gun industry. They're protected by this statute, by the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, or PLACA, as we call it, you know, and gives them limited liability from these suits. And they also, there's also a, a, another, you know, there's many pieces of legislation, but another one is called the Tiard Amendment, which actually freezes or it, it kind of, it acts to prevent the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms from really releasing information about the numbers of firearms that um, you know dealers are selling that are being recovered in crime. And again, that information was being used 
against the gun industry in lawsuits about 20 years ago. And rather fight that out in court, right, the gun lobby went to Congress and, and got some of these pieces of legislation passed to insulate them. So doing these suits, right, with one, struggling to get a lot of really important information, but two, also knowing that you have to break through this shield first, really important work, certainly important for our clients who wanted accountability for folks that, that were responsible, right, for um, their injuries. And, um, but also there's a policy play, right? You know, getting the industry to reform so that it adopts the safest business practices and guns are sold uh, more safely across the country and less likely to end up in the hands of people that plan to use them in a, in a criminal uh, fashion. So really important work, one that I was really passionate about. And through that work, right, depositions, discovery, learning the inside of, of you know, how guns are, are sold, distribution chains, all of that, I developed just a lot of insight into really just that whole marketplace and, um, you know, and where there was space for reform. So I took that, you know, that experience and about two years uh, after of, of doing the litigation work, I switched over to the programs and policy side where I was asked to help kind of redefine our anti-gun trafficking program. It's what we call our supply side approach to preventing gun violence, where we're really focused on industry reform, not just the legal aspect, the litigation aspect of it, but what are other creative ways where we can incentivize the gun industry to adopt the safest business practices and uh, really kind of lead that push there. Wow, I think that's so interesting. I, I guess I interview a lot of lawyers from all over the profession, and this, this job sounds really different and really unique. And not something that I think even the general public who has the desire to be a part of this even knows that much about. I guess the question on the litigation side was, how did you transfer the skills from having two to four arbitrations a month and negotiating contracts for rabbis and cantors into this new, uh, new at least for you, really nuanced area of law and litigation? And did the skills transfer? Yeah. You dive in head first, right? You read everything you can but you have this advantage as a litigator, right? You have this advantage of detailed discovery, right? You have this advantage of depositions. You have this advantage of combing through information to find things that help your case, right? And in doing that, you absorb information about things you never thought you would learn about, right? Like the inside of the gun industry and how it works. And I think, right, through kind of that, in a sense, you know, it's, it's, it's part investigations, it's part narrative building, right? Yeah. It's part all of that. When you put all of those parts together, right, so, so you develop those skills when you're uh, planning arbitrations, right? You get piles of documents that have evidence, right? You have information and interviews, right? You have an opportunity to examine witnesses and you're building these cases, right? And you're finding information and you're learning, right, about aspects, right? I mean, look, the Postal Service is a very complex place itself. You have to learn a lot about how it operates to make the best case and simplify it, right, for someone who is not in it, right, who's not spending the tens of hours or, or more, right, prepping cases. So, you know, bringing that skill over to do litigation work, right, you know, arbitration is kind of litigation light, right? It's just a very condensed version, at least in the space that I was doing it, right? Obviously, you know, international arbitration is no 
different than right. litigation. But um, you know, but it, but what I was doing was kind of litigation light, right? And then bringing that over to to Brady in the context of of you know federal um, court litigation or state court litigation, very transferable skill. But what was surprising to me is how transferable those skills were over to the policy and program side, right? Where all of a sudden you, and, and I, I'm always hesitant to use the word expert, right? Because the more you learn about something, the more you learn you don't know, right? But to be able to specialize, right? In something that, you know, and be in the details and be able to think about it in a little bit of a different way because of the information you've gained. You know, look, I'll be honest, to me, it was surprising, right? How transferable those skills were to um, a non-litigation role. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit more about that, because I think we get students who come to law school and they say, I want to do policy. I want to help the world. But then the way we use that term policy in law school is very nuanced and and really different. And I've tried to feature the stories of other public policy lawyers on the podcast, but I guess I'm curious from your perspective, what is that difference? What is the goal that is different in policy work and litigation work on the ground, even if you're in the same area of law? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot there, right? First of all, in the policy space in the, or in the policy and program space where I am, I have the benefit of working um, with a lot of non-lawyers, right? Um, and lawyers alike. And, you know, the law kind of in law school really teaches you a really valuable and but very confined way, I think, of, of, of looking at a problem, right? Um, and analyzing it and, and using logic, right? Um, I think, first of all, I should say, it is an incredible advantage to have that, right? To be able to think like a lawyer is something for all of the crap that we give it sometimes. It's also just an incredible thing to be able to do. So I think, right, having the benefit of working with people that don't think like lawyers is also something that really opens your mind to different approaches and different thoughts, right? And, you know, it's something, look, I still struggle with, right? I go back to my roots, right, as a lawyer and want to be very go from point A to point B to point C to point D, right? But that's not always the best way to get to places. And I think on the policy side, right, the goals are to some degree the same, right? But, but maybe the concrete end goal of what you're doing is different, right? In litigation, you want to win a case, right? You want to serve your client's best interest. You want to put them in a position to succeed, whether it's in negotiations or in litigation. In policy, you know, you want to, at least in my line of work, we want solutions, right, that are going to save people's lives, right? It's not necessarily one thing, right? And especially in the gun violence prevention space where it's a multifaceted solution where you need a little bit of everything. And there's lots of stakeholders, right? To some degree, right, you need to convince people, you need to convince legislators if it's that space or uh, executive uh, folks or, or, you know, whatever audience, you need to convince people that the solutions you're posing are real solutions, right? Unfortunately, in our space, sometimes we have to even convince people that there's a real problem <laughs> that needs to be solved. Although I will say those that at this point that don't identify that gun violence is really a problem in our country are, are living a little bit under a rock. But I think, you know, there's a lot of those same skills, right? But there's a little bit maybe more flexibility. Um, and also, right, you're, you know, when you're pursuing programmatic and policy change, 
you're also not really representing an individual client, right? And that's something that's, um, that's different as well. And you know, the area you work in is one of the biggest issues, frankly, of our society today, maybe our time. And this is something we see in the newspaper almost every single day. And unfortunately, this is just a reality of what it means to be in America today. I mean, we both have young kids and there's some, that's something I constantly think about um, is gun violence in our country. How does the fight of trying to change policy and change minds that doesn't happen overnight, how do you deal with that tension? It's so present as an issue in our society and you're trying to be part of a team to help solve it. But a lot of that solution comes in the form of incremental solutions. So how do you deal with that and how do you think about that? Well, look, um, I guess there's, there's kind of two ways to look at it. One is it's hard work, right? I mean, it's emotionally hard work. I work with tons of survivors of gun violence. Um, you know, our work, we take very personally. We want to put ourselves out of business, right? That's what we want to do. And, and we're reminded often of what it seems like our failures every time, you know, our issue is on the front page, which is daily, right, in this country. And that makes it hard, right? But at, on the other end of it, right, the other place to be is not in the fight, right? Um, and, you know, there is something empowering about knowing that I go to work every day um, and that this is my goal, right? That I am fighting for something that I believe in. I believe in that our children deserve a safer future. I believe that we all deserve to live in, in safety and security and um, that, that there are solutions that we need to have the courage as a country to agree are the right solutions. And that's the fight I'm in, right? Um, and and um, I'm lucky to be part of it. And for those that are listening to this or have been thinking about this, and maybe this is why they went to law school in the first place and they find themselves not currently in the fight, but thinking, yeah, I want to find my way into this fight or another similar fight that needs policy change. What do you recommend to those people, especially the people who are either just graduating or just more junior in our profession? Yeah. I mean, life is and careers are kind of funny, right? You know, if you'd asked me when I graduated law school, if I would be doing what I'm doing now, I probably would have been like, that's kind of cool. I think I'd like to be doing that. But I never thought of that. Look for opportunities. You know, at Brady, our issue, right, gun violence prevention is something a lot of lawyers want to work on. We work with lawyers in pro bono capacities all the time, right? Um, we have an incredible group of lawyers um, that work at, at big firms or smaller firms that, you know, that want to help and, and they do, right? So look for pro bono opportunities and spaces that you're interested in happening, whether that's through your firm, right? Or whether that's through, you know, on your own. I think it's, it's, it's a great way to kind of see the inside of that work um, and be able to do it and gain experience in it. But also just look for those opportunities, right? Uh, don't limit yourself, right? Mm. Don't look at job posts that you find interesting and think to yourself, they'll never hire me, right? Well, they certainly won't if you don't apply. So, you know, remember why you went to law school, what drives you, you know, maybe it's different now. And just keep your eyes open. Look for volunteer opportunities, pro bono opportunities, different job opportunities. Um, and who knows where your path will lead. I guess maybe I'm one of those mid-level lawyers, right? I'm not that young and I'm not that old, right? And I still have a lot of uh, years left in me as a lawyer. I love my work at Brady, 
Uh, I love where I'm at. I love what I'm doing. But who knows what the future holds? Yeah, and we're getting, you know, sort of to the close of the end of our time together. So I guess I have two more questions. And the first is you've taken on yet another role relatively recently. Um, so you started out as a litigator at Brady. Brady. Um, you did policy, and now you're taking on that general counsel role. And I guess I'm curious of what it's like for me, what it would be like for me to follow you around every day now that you're the general counsel of a very important uh, and big nonprofit. What are some some of the surprises of that job, or what are some of your favorite parts? Yeah, so I guess it's it's interesting, right? I mean, I've always kind of practiced in contract law, right? Um, I, you know, representing um, a large labor union, seeing the inside of how it works, providing some general counsel response. I've picked up bits and pieces of that work along the way. Even when I was litigating at Brady, they knew I had that experience, so I'd review vendor contracts just to help out. And then it became more than just vendor contracts, right? Um, it became questions of, well, look, look, Brady is, has a 501c3 entity and a 501c4 entity, and we have a non-connected PAC, right? Like, um, how do we make sure that we're most compliant, right, with what the law requires, and I started picking that up and more and more kind of came on my plate. And, and honestly, at some point, somebody just kind of turned around and said, you're kind of doing all of the general counsel work mm-hmm. right now. We should probably make you general counsel. So, you know, it's again, it's funny. It's just you, you, you build on bits and pieces of the expertise that you've developed over the years. As for the question of what my day looks like, it can be all over the place, which is also a lot of fun, right? I mean, you know, in one day, I'm traditionally practicing law you know, maybe 40% of the time and 60% of the time, I'm not, right? And I kind of just organically got there, but I wouldn't have it any other way, right? Uh, It it really gives me a diversity of work that I think a lot of folks in the legal profession don't always get. Um, But, you know, if if you just kind of keep working at the things that you, you know how to do while developing new specialties or then... I guess that's kind of how I ended up where I am now. I love that. Well, look, I'm going to ask you the same sort of closing question I ask pretty much all of my guests, which is for a piece of advice for someone just starting out in our profession. What would you recommend for those folks? Yeah, lean into your work, but also be true to who you are. When you're doing something that you truly believe in, when you do something that brings you joy, where you go to work, And for me, I want to make a difference, right? For others, they want to be intellectually challenged. You know, and there's a whole variety of different things that drive you as a as a person. Lean into the work you're doing, but but keep an open mind, be true to yourself, and know, right, that if if it's time to make a change, that's okay. You can make that change. Um, It takes time, it takes effort, it takes work, it takes a little bit of luck, but just keep at it and you never know where your career path will lead you. Yeah, I love that. And just thinking about your whole story and about how some of the skills you learned even before you finished law school are now coming back to play in ways that you had no idea that they would years later. I mean, I just think that's a real testament to picking up skills along the way. And those skills may allow you to do something, maybe not tomorrow, but a few years down the line. And I just think that's a fantastic note to finish on. Yeah, absolutely. And look, and and of course, right, there's also financial components to it. You know, I've, I've got law school loans too. I've got grad school loans as well, right? And, you know, it is scary when you come out of law school, but even that, as you progress in your career, it's a little less scary, right? And things get better on that front. It doesn't always matter where you start, just as long as you keep an open mind and you're true to yourself you'll get there one day. Just keep at it. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much for your time, Josh, and for your really, really important work in today's world. 
And I just wish you the best of luck and hopefully uh, we'll be able to keep the conversation going in the future. So thanks again. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's, it's, it's great to be here and, and you're doing a real service with this podcast. Again, I'm Jonah Perlin and this is the How I Lawyer podcast. Thanks to podcast sponsor Law Pods for their expert editing. If you're a lawyer considering starting your own podcast, definitely check them out at lawpods.com. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider sharing it with friends and colleagues or on social media. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please sign up for the email list at howilawyer.com or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, if you have comments, suggestions, or ideas for the show, please reach out to me at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and have a great week. 